Our sermon this morning is from Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 23. It's entitled, The Sovereignty of God Over the Salvation of His People. Last week we looked at Romans 9, 1 through 13, uh, the sovereignty of God to keep His word. And now we're going to look at the sovereignty of God over the salvation of His, his people. The big idea that we um, considered last week to kind of set the stage, set the... Because Romans 9 is, is kind of a... A contra- you know, controversial passage. A lot of people, you know, uh, are v- get very worked up over it. But so we wanted to kind of zoom out and look at Romans nine, not just nine, but nine through eleven in the broader context of the entire book of Romans. And so uh, Romans one through eight is chock full of just all of these big, sweeping, priceless promises that God makes to His people. You've been justified by God's grace through the person and work of Jesus. You have peace with God through Christ. God has given you his love, his Holy Spirit. You've been given new life through the resurrection of Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've been adopted as a child of God, right? You can cry out, Abba, Father. There is nothing in all of creation that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lots of big, sweeping promises. By the time you get to the end of Romans 8. So the catch is, you know, the, 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 the objection or the catch that a reader in the first century is going to be thinking in their mind is, that's all well and good, Paul. All these promises that you're saying uh, that we as believers in Jesus possess together. But um, the, the fact of the matter is, God already made a whole bunch of other promises uh, to the nation of Israel. And if your gospel is true, then it would appear that God has broken those promises, right? God promised that Israel would be uh, his people and that he would be their God and that he would save them and that they would be his nation in the promised land. And if Paul's gospel is true, Paul's gospel says that the only way that someone can be saved is by trusting in Jesus, which means that there will be people who are ethnically Jewish who don't trust in Jesus who will be judged by God. They, they will end up in, in hell. And, and there will also be Gentiles who are not ethnically Jewish who do trust in Jesus and they will be included in the covenant. They will be welcomed into God's presence in, in heaven. And so, in a word, if, God's, if, if Paul's gospel is true, then the objection was that God's word has failed. And so Romans 9 through 11 is speaking to that objection. Has God's word failed or not? If everything that Paul said in Romans 1 through 8 is true, does that mean that everything that God said from Genesis through Malachi is, has failed? And Romans 9 through 11 is Paul's kind of, he's saying, no, it, God's word has not failed. My gospel is true. Salvation is still by grace through faith in Jesus. And yes, that does mean that there will be ethnically Jewish people who are not included in the the covenant because they don't trust in Jesus. And yes, that does mean that there will be Gentiles who are not ethnically Jewish who will be included in the, the covenant because they do trust in Jesus. But that does not mean that the word of God has failed. And here's why. And the three kind of the three themes that I mentioned last week that we're gonna all, we're gonna see every week uh, through through the whole uh, passages is um, one: God's word has not failed because God's promises to Israel were not really given to every single physical genetic descendant of Abraham. They were specifically given to those uh, the the remnant of believers within that nation who trust God, the spiritual Israel of, of God. That's kind of one uh, point that Paul teases out. Second one is, God's word has not failed because God intentionally 
allowed for people in the nation of Israel to reject the Messiah so that the gospel of Jesus would then go out beyond the nation of Israel, out into the the far corners of the world, so that Gentiles like us could hear the gospel and believe it. God's word did not fail because it wasn't for every single ethnic uh, Israelite, it was for the spiritual Israel who believed. Uh, It it has not failed because God has intentionally allowed Israel to, to reject the Messiah so that the nations could embrace him. And then three, God's word has not failed because... At the end of the day, when the dust settles, there's going to be this huge, massive in-gathering of presumably uh, ethnic Israel, ethnic Jewish people at the end, at the, the eschatological restoration, at the end of all days, there's going to be a lot of Jewish people who trust in Jesus and they're kind of welcomed back into, into God's presence. And so we're going to see Paul work out one of each of those three things um, throughout Romans 9 through 11. Last week, in verses 1 through 13, he kind of drilled in on the fact that not all ethnically Jewish people are, in fact, included in the covenant, uh, but rather it's only the remnant of people who trust in God, believe in, in Jesus. And he uh, kind of walks through, he shows us these case studies of it was um, Isaac and not Ishmael, and it was Jacob and not Esau. These were the children of the, the promise, right? Uh, the people who, these are people who are not merely members of physical, ethnic, genetic Israel, but they are also part of the true spiritual uh, Israel, the remnant of believers. And so today, Paul's going to pick up on the heels of that argument, showing that that distinction between the broader Israel and the believing Israel. And he's going to kind of deal with a few implications or potential objections to what he just said last week. And namely, they are, one, the fact that God has chosen some within Israel and not others— the fact that God's chosen Isaac and not Ishmael and Jacob and not Esau, that does not mean that God is unjust. And the reason why, we'll get into it, the reason why is because God is God. He can do whatever he wants. Uh, two, the fact that God has chosen some within Israel and not others, right, Isaac and not Ishmael, Jacob and not Esau, does not absolve our responsibility before God to respond to him with repentance and faith. Right? The fact that God is sovereign over salvation does not mean that we uh, are robots or that we don't have uh, capacity or volition or responsibility. We do. Second point. And then the third point is that God can and does do whatever he wants, exactly as he pleases, for the sake of his glory, to, to, to exalt his name and to bring glory to himself. Those are going to be kind of the three uh, assertions that we're going to walk through that we're going to see Paul kind of make in Romans nine fourteen to 23. So I'm going to read it together, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive into what is admittedly a, a tough passage, uh, but we're going we're to tackle it together. It says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human exertion, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very reason I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Well, you will say to me then, Well, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? 
But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make some out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your perfect, inspired, infallible, eternal, immutable, divine word. And God, we ask you this morning to speak to us through it. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we can listen and trust and obey your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. The lingering question in the minds of the readers was, if God chose Isaac and not Ishmael, Jacob and not Esau, then that just means that God is unjust. He's not, not fair. Fair is level playing field. Everyone gets an equal shot. God doesn't choose anyone. God sits back, does nothing, and lets us decide whether we're going to choose him or not. That would be fair. That would be just. And so all this business about God choosing some and not others, Jacob I loved, Esau I hate, is, is not fair. And so Paul says, I know what you're thinking, that what I'm saying implies that there is injustice on God's part, but there is not, but by no means, under no circumstances. And here's Paul's reasoning for why his gospel, that God chooses some and not others, Isaac and not Ishmael, Jacob and not Esau, does not imply that God is unjust. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. He's basically saying, God's sovereignty, which manifests itself in God saving some and not others, does not mean that God is unjust because God is God. And he can do whatever he wants. God, we are, God is God. We are not God. This quote, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, compassion on whom I have compassion, comes from Exodus chapter 33. Here's what's going on in the context there. God has just brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He's, you know, decisively uh, kind of swooped in and, and, and saved them from the, their um, slavery to Pharaoh, brought them out, uh, brought them through this miraculous crossing of the Red Sea, brought them into the wilderness, brought them right to the foot of Mount Sinai. And then he says, everyone stay there. I'm, I'm going to meet with Moses on top of Mount Sinai. Everyone stay there. Moses goes up with him. He gives him his law. He confirms his covenant with him. And then Moses says to God, Please let your presence go with us as we leave here and continue to journey toward the promised land. And God says, yes, of course, absolutely. I will go with you. And then Moses says, okay, please show me your glory. And God says, I will show you my glory. I will tell you who I am. My name is 
the Lord. Yahweh is, is the, the word there. And, and this name for God, when, when, he, when God tells Moses, my name is the Lord, Yahweh, it's this really, it's a super important, weighty, theologically packed term that literally means uh, I am. My name is I am. And so the implication of that name for God, I am, is, is I exist. I always am. I it, I always have been, but more so than that, I always am. I am the one who is. I am the eternally existent one. I have always existed from past, present, and and future. You, Moses, and everyone around you, everyone that you know, everything that you see in the physical world, you are all created beings. You're finite and dependent. There was a time when you didn't exist, and your existence is contingent upon my having created you. But I am different than all of that. I exist. I am. I am a necessary being. I'm not contingent. I'm necessary. Past, present, future. I am the creator. You are the creature. I am infinite. You are finite. I am self-sufficient. You are entirely dependent. All of that is baked in to God's name. God's name, I am the Lord. I am means all of that. I am different than you. I am higher than you. I am God. You are not God. I am eternally, necessarily existent, and you are inherently dependent and contingent. And so he says, show me your glory. And God says, my name is the Lord. I am. And then the very next thing that God says, after he says, my name is the Lord. I am. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So the logic is, God is saying, Moses, I am not like you. I am bigger than you. I am higher than you. I am sovereign. I am the creator. I am infinite. I am eternal. I am. You are a dependent, contingent, created being. And by virtue of that distinction between me as the creator and you as the creature, you as the, as the creation, the, the gap in our being there implies that it's my prerogative as the creator to do what I want to do. I don't have to answer to you. I don't have to, um, you know, I, 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 I can be gracious to whoever I want to be gracious to. I can be merciful to whoever I want to be merciful to. I don't need to ask your permission as the creature to be, permission, to be gracious to someone. I can just do it. I don't need to ask your permission as the creature. I don't need to justify to you why I decided to be gracious to someone. I can just do it because I am the sovereign God. and It's my prerogative to give grace to who I want and to give mercy to who I want. That's Exodus 33. Show me your glory. Tell me who you are. I am the Lord, the eternally existent one. I have total freedom to save who I want because I am God. And Paul is drawing on that here in Romans 9. God is God. God is sovereign. God does as he pleases. God saves whoever he wants to save, and he doesn't need to ask our permission to to do it. Now this idea does not doesn't always sit well with us right it's i don't know anyone myself included 
who the first time that they hear this doctrine of the sovereignty of God over all things, including our own salvation, I don't know anyone that, that hears it and just is in, immediately, instinctively drawn to it, loves it. Because it pushes back against some of the things that we like to think about ourselves. Some of the things that are like biologically baked in to who we are. We like to think that we are in control of our own destiny, right? We are free to do as we please. We are, you know, everything, like we're responsible for our actions. This is my life, my house, my country, right? No taxation without representation, right? Uh, you know, don't tread on me. My body, my right, like we 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 have all these. That's like they're all saying, like I am in control. I have responsibility. I have autonomy. I have freedom. I am in control of what happens to me in my life. And so, the idea that we might not be as in control of our own lives as we'd like to think that we are, or the idea that there might be someone else who is more sovereign over our lives than we are, or the idea that we might be saved because. God decided to save us, and not necessarily because we are smart enough that we decided that we wanted to be saved by God doesn't always sit well with us. It's a totally understandable response to find it difficult to to digest. The fact of the matter is, either our salvation depends on God and on the sovereign grace and mercy that God has decided to show us, or our salvation depends on us and on our ability to respond to God and to to decide to follow him. I would submit to you that given given the two choices, either your salvation depends on you or it depends on God, we all want our salvation to be dependent on God. Because God is more trustworthy than you are, I am, any of us. God is less subject to change than any of us are. It's better for you, it's better for me, it's better for all of us if salvation is a result of God's free grace and not a result of our desire or effort. Which is exactly what Paul says in verse 16. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So, so when God saves a person, that salvation is not contingent upon their will. It's not contingent upon their exertion, on their desire or their effort. It's contingent upon God and his mercy. Because the reality is that if it weren't that way, Reality is, if, if, if salvation were dependent upon our will or exertion, then zero people would be saved. We read passages like this, and kind of at first glance we might think, that's offensive, that's not fair. It's not fair that God would choose some and not others. That doesn't so sit well with me. Um, when I think about my own salvation... I like to think that I chose God and that I didn't necessarily need God to choose me. But the Bible's clear that human beings, when left to their own devices, when left to choose 
freely what they want to do and what they want to believe and who they want to worship. They will choose to worship and serve God 0% of the time. And they will choose to worship and serve themselves and their desires and preferences 100% of the time. Which is why Paul said back in Romans 3, when he was quoting from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, he says, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands God, no one seeks after God. Every single person has turned away from God. They have become worthless before God. No one does good, not even one. So you've got David and Paul together in unison, the quintessential king in the Old Testament and the quintessential theologian and, and church planter, missionary, author in the New Testament, both agreeing that human beings, if left to their own natural devices and tendencies, do not, will not choose God. They choose themselves. So, it's, so we, it's true that we have free will, but the fact remains that apart from God's intervention, we are going to use that free will 100% of the time to freely choose to rebel and to do what is contrary to God, which is why we need God to save us. We need God to save us in spite of ourselves. Now, at, some, at this point, someone might be thinking, still not buying it. Not buying that God sovereignly chooses some to be saved and, and, and not others. Not buying that God... I can't possibly think of any reason why God would choose not to save someone, why God would allow someone to not be saved if, he, if it's within his capacity to sovereignly save them. And Paul says, all right, I'll show you an example from, from Exodus. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So an example of a person that God could have chosen to save if he wanted to, because God can do whatever he wants to do, right? There, there's various foreign Gentile rulers, kings, authorities all throughout the Bible that God chooses to save. Naaman the Syrian, King Nebuchadnezzar, King Darius, right? you know, the Roman, they're, they're, God is showing grace in one way or another to all kinds of, of rulers and authorities outside of the nation of Israel. But for some reason, he did not choose to do that with Pharaoh. And the question is, why would God do that? Why would God harden Pharaoh's heart instead of soften it? Why would God allow Pharaoh to persist in his rebellion against him? And, and Exodus 9, which is what uh, Paul's quoting from here, says this is why so that I might show my power in you, so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So God chooses to save some. He chose to not save Pharaoh. And the reason why God allowed Pharaoh to rebel the way that he did is so that God's power would be displayed, so that God's name would be glorified. Think about which version of events says more about God? Which one makes God look better? A version where God's people have a mild, you know, a, a mild 
geopolitical skirmish with a neighboring nation who's of about equal power, the ruler of whom is actually a pretty nice guy and genuinely wants to do right by Israel and actually likes God and wants to help Israel worship God. And so God then helps them overcome that mildly uncomfortable situation. Or a version where God's people have been conquered, enslaved, oppressed by a massive military industrial superpower and they're being forced into hard labor building pyramids and the ruler of that nation is this ruthless, wicked man who hates God and hates God's people and then God comes in and intervenes decisively to save them from slavery and as, he, as he's chasing them down to try to recapture them and traffic them back into slavery, God miraculously parts the Red Sea and they walk across on dry land and then as this wicked king is coming through chasing them God miraculously lets the waters crash down on them so that his people can kind of go unmolested into the promised land like like which version of events makes God look better stronger more powerful more able to save his people in the midst of a seemingly impossible situation And so God says, I allowed Pharaoh to be the man that he was. A man who hated God, a man who was willing to oppress and exploit and kill the people that I love, so that when I defeat him, everyone will see how great and awesome and worthy of worship I am. That's why I let Pharaoh do that. Could God have saved Pharaoh? Absolutely he could have, but he chose not to so that his name would be magnified, so that his name would be proclaimed, so that the maximum amount of glory would be brought to God's name. Because God exists primarily above all else for the sake of his own glory. God is great and glorious and awesome, and God loves when his people see how great and glorious and awesome he is. Which is why God allowed Pharaoh to do the things that he did, the things that Pharaoh chose to do of his own free will, of his own volition. He wasn't coerced, but God allowed them to do, allowed him to do them, did not intervene for the sake of his own glory so that the world would see how great and awesome God is. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he has mercy, or he has mercy on whomever he wills, he hardens whomever he wills. Just restating what he just said in uh, verse 15 and kind of the whole text so, so far. God is God. God is not a creature like us. God does not operate with the same limitations that we do. God does not answer to us. Uh, God can save whoever he wants to save. He doesn't need our permission to do so. And he does so for the sake of his glory. Now, there's another objection that might pop up here. So the first objection was, does God's choosing some and not others, does that mean that God is not just? And Paul says, no, God is just. God is God. So he gets to say and do whatever he wants, and it is just because he is God. But the next objection that we're going to talk about starting in verse 19 is, okay, well, if God sovereignly saves some and not others, and if God's sovereign decision to save people is kind of set in place from eternity past and it's unchangeable, then why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? 
If, if what you're saying, Paul, that God is sovereign over all things, including the salvation of his people, if that is true, then that means that we are robots, and therefore we can't be accountable for anything that we do because we couldn't have done otherwise even if we'd wanted to, right? God's will is established beforehand, so God can't possibly find us guilty. How can God find us guilty if he is sovereign? And Paul's answer to that question in verse 20 is, Who are you, O man? To answer back to God. So, if God is sovereign, then how could God possibly hold me responsible for anything that I do since it was sovereignly arranged from eternity past? And God says, yeah, it's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Um, I don't have any, I can't give you one. I can't give you an answer that's going to be satisfactory to your human brain, your, your fallen and therefore inherently imperfect notions of logic and fairness. If God is sovereign over everything, including everything that I do, including whether I trust him or not, then how can God find fault? How can God hold someone guilty for something that he ordained to happen? And Paul says, I can't really say All I can do is tell you that God has told us that he is entirely sovereign and that nothing happens that he has not allowed to happen. And God has also told us that we are entirely responsible for the decisions that we make, the things that we do. That we have free will, we have free agency, we have volition, we have real capacity to make real meaningful choices, and then we are accountable for those choices that we made and the actions that we took. Paul says they're they're both true. I'm saying them both as full-throatedly as I can. God is as sovereign as, God is infinitely, eternally sovereign, no questions asked, and we are responsible. We're responsible to hear the gospel and to believe it. We're responsible for the actions that we take. We, are, we, are, we make real, meaningful decisions and actions, and then we are responsible for and accountable for those decisions and actions. Well, Paul, how can that be? How can God be sovereign and we be responsible for what we do? There's no way that those two things can both be true at the same time. And Paul says, well, they are both true. And I wish I could explain it to you in greater detail I wish I could explain to you how these two seemingly irreconcilable doctrines can both be true. All I can say is they are because God has said that they are both true. So now we have, we have a, a choice. When presented with these two seemingly irreconcilable doctrines, God's sovereignty and our responsibility, <clears throat> our responsibility, We have a choice. We can say, yo, I just don't think they're both true. I can't can't wrap my mind around a scenario in which those two seemingly irreconcilable doctrines are both true, so I don't believe them. I, I realize God may have said they're both true. I don't care. I don't believe him because I can't understand how it could be true, so I'm not going to believe it. That's one choice. The other choice is, yeah, I don't understand it because they appear to be irreconcilable, but I believe it. I don't understand how God's total and complete sovereignty coexists with my responsibility and capacity for real meaningful choice, but I believe that they're both true because God has said that they are both true, and I believe God and I trust God.
my logic, my fallen notion of fairness on the one hand, or God's word on the other hand. And Paul is saying, that's a no-brainer. Trust God every time. Even if you don't understand it, even if you don't think that it could possibly be true. Because doing the alternative, telling God that you don't believe his word because it doesn't comport with your notions of logic and fairness is tantamount to talking back to God. He says, don't do that. Will what, is, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Right? The, the creature does not get to talk back to the, the... The creature does not get to insist that the creator answer him on his terms to his you know, satisfaction. I want you to satisfy my finite, creaturely notions of logic and fairness. The creator doesn't have to do that. He's the creator. How can God hold me accountable for actions that he ordained from eternity past? I don't know, and God doesn't owe us an answer to that question. Because he's God. If, if, my, if I go to Baxter, he's three. If I go to my three-year-old and say, it's time for bed, let's go brush our teeth. And he says, yeah, I don't want to do that. I want to stay up. I want to eat candy. I want to watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And I say, nope, we're not doing any of that. It's time to go to bed. Let's go brush our teeth. If he were to say, why? Why do we have to go brush my teeth? Why can't I stay up? Why can't I eat candy? Why can't I watch violent cartoons? I could answer every single one of those questions. I've read up, right? I could, I could talk to him about dental hygiene and plaque buildup and tartar, and, right? I could talk to him about circadian rhythms and getting enough sleep and how it's correlated to mental and physical health in young children. I could talk to him about excessive consumption of sugar and what that does to your dental health and how it affects your your sleep and your long-term health. I could talk to him about cartoons and how uh, studies have shown that they're more addictive than heroin. And I I could talk to him about all of these things. I could give him all the reasons to satisfy, but he wouldn't, but I don't do that. I just say, no, we're, we're going to bed, man. I said so. So let's go brush our teeth. You don't have to like it, but you do have to do it. I'm not going to sit here and try to explain to your three-year-old brain because you can't, your brain can't wrap itself around the fact that what I'm saying you need to do is good for you. It's better for you. I can. I can understand why what I'm saying is good for you and, and you can't. I'm 40, you're three but I'm not going we're going, to, we're going to bed. Now, consider the gap in cognitive ability between me at 40, a grown man, and my son at three, and, like I, and the fact that I can't communicate to him in terms that he can understand why he needs to do X, Y, and Z, so I just have to say, uh, look, you're, you can't understand it right now, but that doesn't mean it's not true. You just have to trust me. Now consider the gap in cognitive ability between me and my son, and now consider the gap in cognitive ability between any of us and the sovereign, eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, eternally existent, knows everything, 
God of the universe. The gap between God and any of us is far greater than the gap between me and my three-year-old son. I have found myself often saying to my son, I'm not going to explain it to you right now because you can't understand it. One day you will, and I'll tell you then. But right now you just got to trust me. You got to take my word for it. It's okay for me to say that to my son, and it's okay for God to say to us, I'm not going to explain this to you right now because you can't understand it. One day you will, and I'll tell you then. But for now, you have to take my word for it. You have to trust me. It's not our place to answer back to God. It's not our place to ask God, why did you do this like that? God speaks. God acts. We listen. We trust. And if we don't understand, if what God says and does transcends our finite, fallen notions of logic and fairness, then we trust him anyway. Because he is our father and he loves us and we trust him. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for dishonorable use? The answer is, of course he has that right, right? The potter can do whatever he wants. He's the, right? He can take, he can make a beautiful, ornate, intricate vase to be on display in the White House or the Vatican, and he can take other clay and he can patch ductwork that's, that's leaking. It's totally his choice, totally his prerogative. He doesn't need to ask the clay's permission. He didn't sin against the clay by assigning different tasks to different pieces of clay. And Paul's saying that's how it is. When God looks at the entire sea of humanity all of whom have sinned against him, all of whom have rebelled against him, all of whom are justly deserving of his righteous wrath. God looks at that sea of humanity and he decides, for whatever reasons that he has that he does not need to disclose to us, he decides to intervene and save some, and then he chooses to let the rest get what they want, go the way that they have freely chosen to go, according to the choices that they have freely and willingly and voluntarily made. That is, God has done nothing wrong. He has simply let some sinners who have chosen to rebel against him go the way they wanted to go, and he has taken other sinners who have also chosen to rebel against him, and he has intervened and changed their hearts and given them new life and given them eyes to see, and a newfound capacity to love him and trust him and follow him. And, and when he does that, he has done nothing wrong. In Matthew 20, parable of the laborers in the vineyard, right? Guys come all day long and uh, different times of the day. And then he's, he's showing up to pay them at the end of the day. And he gives these guys who came right at the very end of the day, they worked one hour, he gives them a full day's wages. And then he comes to the guys who've worked all day, and they're like, oh man, apparently like, Apparently, we're going to get like a week's worth of pay, if, if not more. I mean, if we just extrapolate out the math, I mean, like we're, we're really about to, to cash in here. And he gives everyone one day's pay. And they say, wait a minute, that's not fair. You gave them more than what they deserved, 
but you gave us exactly what we earned. That's not fair. And the master says, that's exactly what I did. You are exactly right. I gave them more than they deserved, and I gave you exactly what you deserved, and in so doing, I have done nothing wrong. So what if I choose to give them more and choose to give, like, am I not allowed to be generous with my own money? Some get exactly what they deserve and the master has done nothing wrong in giving them that. Some get far more than they deserve. They get treated better than they deserve and the master has done nothing wrong in doing that. He is totally free to treat either group, right? He didn't, he didn't take from the first group. He didn't steal from the first group. He gave them exactly what they deserved. And then he, he just gave the second group more, better, because he's kind. And so if God, if he sovereignly chooses to save some, right? If someone rebels against God, incurs the just judgment of God, God has done nothing wrong. He has given them exactly what they deserve. It's perfect, appropriate justice. And if someone else sins against God, rebels against God, and God decides to save them, he has done nothing wrong. That's perfect, wonderful, benevolent mercy. Either way, God is good. God is right. God is just. God is gracious. God is merciful. God is a good God and a good Father. Which leaves us with one more lingering question that Paul's going to look at in the last two verses. Why? Why does God do that? I get that God can, right? I get that you've established that he has every right to save some and not others because he is the creator and we are the creation. I get, I get that his sovereignty does not necessarily mean that, that he's unjust. I get that he can, but why does he? If God is God, and if God can do anything that he wants, and if God could have designed a universe where every single person is saved and goes to heaven, which he could have done, then why didn't he? If God is going to sovereignly save some, then why doesn't he sovereignly save all? Seems better. Seems more loving. Seems like something I would do if I were God. And here's Paul's answer to that question. It comes in the form of a hypothetical question. He says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which were prepared beforehand for glory. So here's, a, hypothetically, what if God decided to take these vessels over here, prepared for destruction, and, and let them be destroyed so that these vessels over here, the vessels of mercy prepared for glory, so that they can know and understand and experience and appreciate and see and savor the riches of his glory all the more. 
Question, why does God choose some and not all? Answer, well, it could be that God did it this way so that his character, his grace, his goodness, his glory can be more fully appreciated by the people that he did decide to save. God allows some people to be judged to go to hell, which is what they chose to do anyway. And he sovereignly sees to it that others go to heaven despite the fact that they did not deserve to. So that when people who go to heaven, that they can then look at God, appreciate his goodness, appreciate his grace and his glory in a way that is different and better and more amplified and more magnified than it would have been had God created some other world that operated some different way. You know, the, the, the language structure is weird because it says, well, what, it's, I mean, it's almost like Paul could be saying, I don't know if this is why, but maybe what if it's this? Like, it could be this, it could be something else, it could be this. What if God, but I would argue that, it's, that, that Paul is speaking more definitively than that because he's basically saying the exact same thing here in verses 22 and 23 as he was saying up in uh, chapter, uh, in verse 17 about Pharaoh, right? God raised up Pharaoh in order to show his power so that his name would be proclaimed. In other words, God raised up a vessel of wrath meant for destruction so that his character and glory could be revealed to the vessels of mercy that he created for glory. So I think it's, I think, I think it's safe to say that Paul is articulating his definitive answer to this question. Why does God only choose to save some and not others? God chose to do it this way because this is the way that achieves the maximum amount of glory for God and for his name. And this is the way that ensures that God's people will receive the maximum amount of satisfaction in him, in his presence, forever. For some reason, that's known to God and not necessarily to us, we will love God more and appreciate God more and think more highly of God and enjoy being in God's presence more because of how God has chosen to save some and not others. It raises all sorts of questions that I don't know the answers to. I'd be happy to talk with you about them. My answers will probably be, I don't know, far more than you're comfortable with. But What we can tell from this passage is that God intentionally designed a world where some people experience judgment exactly like they deserve and where other people experience grace and salvation even though they don't deserve it. And he designed that world specifically so that his name would be exalted, his glory would be magnified, so that his people can appreciate his beauty and his goodness and his glory in ways that they otherwise would not have been able to had God created a different world. The vessels of mercy will appreciate and enjoy God's glory and grace all the more because of how God created the world to function in this way. And our calling as the people of God, is to not answer back, talk back, object, armchair quarterback. I wouldn't have done it that way. This other way makes more sense. This other way is nicer and fairer and better. Our calling as the people of God is to trust God, to trust Jesus, 
thereby showing that we are a part of the very people of God that God has sovereignly chosen to save from our sins. It's not our place to criticize or resent or deny. It's our place to trust and in so doing to receive the assurance that Jesus freely offers to us. God is not unjust because God is God. He can do whatever he wants. We are not without fault. We have real agency and capacity for real meaningful choice and responsibility to obey God. And God does whatever he wants as he pleases for the sake of his glory so that we might be satisfied in him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are sovereign over all things. We thank you that we do not um, worship and serve a God who is weak and powerless or unable to do what he sets out to do. We thank you that you are strong and mighty and that you save every single person that you set out to save without exception. We thank you for your sovereign grace that we can receive freely by trusting in Jesus. And we, we trust you and we uh, worship you because you are good. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.